Revelation chapter 20, we will be covering the first 10 verses, and I want to remind us, as I do every week, that we are about to read God's Word. It comes to us for the enlightening of our eyes, for wisdom for the simple, for the rejoicing of the heart, for the fear of the Lord. So let's read it with that anticipation. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended." After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. So said Winston Churchill, seeking to inspire his soldiers, his nation, and his world to endure against a powerful and evil enemy. Without victory, there is no survival, he said, because he saw in his enemy an evil so vicious that it would allow no freedom to remain on earth undefiled, undefeated. So he said, without victory, there is no survival. There is no freedom. But of course, like all politicians, all generals, all earthly leaders, this was inspiration and not guarantee. This was inspiration. It was valuable, but it was not guarantee because Winston, as eloquent as he was, was not almighty. But this is a speech of the Almighty One about His victory. 
so that even while we are in the midst of this evil world, he gives this victory speech and invites us to believe it is true before we see it take place. Like many subjects in the Bible, he invites us to believe what he says before we see what he says come about. So he comes to us on the spiritual battlefield that is our lives in the midst of history, and he sounds this speech into our hearts and invites to rejoice in it in faith, believing that what he says is true. We're to rejoice in God's victory over Satan ahead of time. We're to rejoice in his victory for his people ahead of time. We're to rejoice in God's victory by faith. That is the overwhelming point of this passage. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you, you might know that this passage contains some of the most debated verses in the book of Revelation. This is the one that everybody talks about, okay? This is the passage. It's some of the most debated verses in Revelation. But I want to make very clear at the outset that the debates are not about the ultimate point of this passage. At that level, genuine Christians agree. There are debates about the timing and the application and so forth, but at the overarching level, and sometimes I think we can miss that forest for the trees as we walk through the debates, and I don't want us to do that. The overwhelming unity of Christian interpretation throughout the centuries since Christ's resurrection is that God binds Satan, he preserves his people, and he brings his enemy to a final judgment. And the point of this passage, as well as all the other sections of Revelation, is to rejoice in God's final victory. And it's very important in walking through this passage this morning or in any study of Revelation that those details and and the understandable debates that take place among them not cause us to lose sight of that effect that it's meant to have on God's people. Because on that point, Christians agree. God is victorious. Satan is defeated. His people reign with him. And that is reason for this passage to produce joy and rejoicing and confidence much more than it produced debate and introspection and so forth. That being said, I am going to try to walk through the passage this morning and include at least a survey of some of the different positions that are held. There there are three reasons that I can tell that we ought to rejoice in God's victory in this passage. Three reasons. The first one I'll spend the most time on because a lot of the controversy will come up there. We're to rejoice that Satan is bound, point number one. We're to rejoice in the first resurrection, point number two. And to rejoice in Satan's final judgment, point number three. So three points. We'll spend most of the time on the first one, so don't get discouraged wondering how long is he going to preach this morning. All right, we're to rejoice that Satan is bound. The passage begins, look down at your Bibles, when John sees yet another vision of an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He binds the dragon who is explicitly identified as Satan, the deceiver of Eve and the remainder of human history. He binds him. He casts him into this pit for a thousand years, a millennium. A millennium, an important word. He throws him in there for a thousand years. And the goal of this is that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. We find out later that when he is released from this binding, he deceives the nations such that they gather in a war against God's people at the very end of history. 
So this opening section about this binding of Satan, his, this imprisonment, if we can call it that, this restraint of him, this chain, is a subject of significant controversy, not in that it happens. There's overwhelming agreement that the point that the church ought to be encouraged by, that that Mediterranean fisherman we keep talking about, that he ought to be encouraged by, is God has control over his enemy And at some point in history, that enemy is bound in a particular way. There's overwhelming agreement about that. That happens. God has control over his enemy. He is bound. He is bound for the specific purpose that the nations cannot march against God's people. That they cannot be deceived in that way. And and there's overwhelming reason to rejoice in that point. But in terms of when this takes place... Well, that's where we get into a place where Christians have multiple different positions, multiple different debates. I'm going to try to describe three major positions briefly this morning. Three major positions, all right? Three major positions that are held about when this thousand years take place. You have to bear with me a little bit. If you studied this in your past or whatever, some folks here might not have, so bear with me. And I want to make a point also. Uh, These positions uh, have a diversity of expressions. So it would be impossible in a given morning to describe all the ways that different people hold each of these positions. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm just going to try to provide a general overview of each of these positions. And I'm going to say up front that we, your pastors, do not agree with the first two. I'll get into that later. We do agree with the last one. But genuine Christians hold all these positions, and I understand why they do. But let's just walk through them, and then we'll get back into diving into the details of the passage. All right, first position to reference about this millennium, and you'll notice this millennium word that comes throughout these three positions. This millennium word, it's all based on the thousand years that's referenced here. A millennium, a thousand years. There's three positions that I'll reference. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, three positions, all related to this thousand years, pre, post, and ah, okay, millennialism. Now, let me just describe in summary form premillennialism first of all. In premillennialism, that position would hold that Christ returns before the millennium, Satan is bound, and Christ reigns physically with his people on earth before, after the, before the thousand years is ended, and then when it is ended, Satan is released and then defeated in a final rebellion where the new heavens and earth are ushered in. That's the basic overview. He returns, he reigns with his people on earth for this thousand years, then there's a final rebellion, and that rebellion is defeated and Christ ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. That's premillennialism in a nutshell, very broadly. Now, there's a couple different forms of this that are worth worth noting. Historic premillennialism is a more narrow form of this view. It focuses simply on the return of Christ leading to an age of his reign on this earth before the coming of the final kingdom. That's historic premillennialism. There's a more popularized or broader version that's associated with premillennialism that's often associated with what is called dispensational theology, which includes a very literal physical fulfillment of land prophecies to the nation of Israel and usually a belief in a pre-tribulational rapture. 
Now, there, there are serious students of that view, and then there are less serious, if I could call them that, popularized versions of that view. It was, it's that, that position has largely been popularized over the last couple of hundred years, and the very popular versions have been popularized by the late, great Planet Earth book by Hal Lindsey, which sold a bazillion copies in the 70s, and then the Left Behind series by LaHaye and Jenkins. If, if you've heard of those series, that is the often the assumed position of many Americans because of some of those popularized versions of this position. That's pre-millennialism. It has more serious expressions than it has less serious popular versions. Secondly, post-millennialism. In this position, at some point in the future, the world will experience an overwhelming progress in Christian conversions, and nations, and society will be largely Christianized while Satan is bound until he is released and defeated in a final rebellion by the return of Christ. So this position is characterized by the idea that Satan being bound means an overwhelming reigning, if we could put it that way, a reigning of Christian society on earth that will take place. There might be different people. One would hold that began at the death and resurrection of Christ. Many would believe that others might point to a a future date where that will take place. But overwhelmingly, they would say there's going to be a a, such a progress of the gospel that society itself is Christianized. There's a reigning on earth of the saints as described later. And then Christ will return after a final rebellion takes place and he will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That's post-millennialism. So the post and the pre-reference, when is Christ returning in relation to this thousand years? Pre says before, post says after. Now, this position is sometimes associated, sometimes, not always, but sometimes associated uh, with an emphasis on the Old Testament law and its application in modern governments in a theology known as theonomy. Not always and not necessarily, but it is sometimes associated with that. And I would say, like some of the more popularized versions of premillennialism, those versions are where some of the more dangerous and unbiblical theology can come into place. The purest form can be a legitimate position that a Christian could hold. Now, I, I, I want to state, I, I could take the rest of the morning to point out why I am not convinced of those two positions, which we won't do. But we could do that because of so much has been written about them. But I will say that many, many genuine Christians and Bible scholars, scholars hold both of these two basic positions, and I certainly would count them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly would count them because it is an understandable position to hold. Now, some expressions of those two theologies might make it difficult for there to be unity in the same church or the same denomination. There are some theologies that, though you might call, count this person a brother in Christ, the differences in that philosophy of ministry and definition of the church would make it very difficult to partner closely together. That, that is true. However, I would happily rejoice that they are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I understand how they have come to that position, though I would disagree respectfully with them, okay? So you might be a person in this church that grew up with one of these positions in their basic form, and there are more dangerous forms like all theologies, but their basic form, and you could hold that position and be a member of this church, all right? 
some of those positions and their expressions might make it more difficult to hear some of the ways I would preach because they would stretch into other interpretations of other passages of Scripture, and that's where the unity issue might become a factor. But it's just helpful to know the overview of those positions and the fact that genuine Christians can hold them. These are not reasons why I would think a person has denied the faith or is outside of orthodoxy in some way. All right, those are the two positions that I don't agree with or we don't agree with. Here's the one that I would subscribe to and that most Sovereign Grace pastors would subscribe to as well, as well as other uh, denominations also. Amillennialism. In this position, the millennium is a symbolic reference to the church age extending from the resurrection of Christ to just before his return and that it can have some similarities to postmillennialism. This position believes that the binding of Satan is a symbolic reference to his defeat at the cross and resurrection of Christ and his inability to stop the progress of the gospel in the church and, very importantly in terms of this passage, his inability to gather all of the nations in overt war to destroy the church until he is released to do so at the very end. It believes that the reigning of believers and the first resurrection referenced in Revelation 20 refers to our spiritual resurrection to be with Christ at death, which is promised to all believers until the return of Christ at the end. Amillennialism would would note that there's this first resurrection and second resurrection, first death and second death, and it would point out that seems seemingly to point to the life that we have after death in Christ that then is consummated when we rise bodily to be with him. That would be amillennialism in a nutshell, and I'll walk through that more deeply as we walk through uh, this passage specifically. Now, none of these passages, or positions I should say, is based exclusively on Revelation 20. Like all interpretation of the Bible, any one passage has to line up with the clear teaching of the other passages. Any one passage, it has to line up. You can't just build a position based on one passage alone. We want to notice, as we walk through my position on this passage, we want to notice that John uses the same opening formula. If you look at your Bibles, then I saw... This is, this is very important because especially the premillennial position would be based on this idea that the battle in 19 that we just saw where the beast and the false prophet are destroyed and this huge army is destroyed by God, Christ returns on a white horse, they would base a lot of that, their understanding of that position springs from the idea that 20 just follows chronologically right after that battle. So there's a huge battle, Christ returns, the beast and the false prophet are defeated, Christ binds Satan, and he reigns physically on earth for a thousand years. I understand that position based on just reading this chronologically. However, it is worth noting that many visions in Revelation are not presented chronologically. So we can't assume that 20 verse 1 just follows right after 19. For example, there have been frequent references in previous passages to the final day of the Lord, even before the battle we just read last week. There are multiple references to the age of the church, for example. And John often gives us history from different angles, repeating the same point and emphasizing different accents of the same vision that he already brought up to us. So I don't think it's certain that the next vision automatically follows the return of the Lord as the premillennial position would hold. 
And one reason I don't think it does is that the battle that was just described in 19, if you look down at your Bibles, you notice the, the rider on the white horse, and there's a fire that burns with sulfur, they're cast, the rest were slain by the sword, and so forth. That battle where the gathered horde of the nations is destroyed completely seems very similar to the gathering horde of nations at the end of chapter 20. Now, a premillennial position would hold those are two different battles. Those are two different battles. There's a massive battle. Christ returns. He reigns on earth. And then there's another massive battle. I'm unpersuaded by that. Based on John's frequent pattern of repeating the same point multiple times, I'm more persuaded. I think he's describing the same battle just from a different angle and using a different emphasis. I I am persuaded by the fact, I think this is the same battle, and so that John, at the end of chapter 19 and turning to verse 20, he reverts to an earlier moment in history and explains the age leading up to that battle from the perspective of our greatest enemy, and then describes the final battle again with an emphasis on his defeat along with his henchmen. And and the other point to be made here is if this millennium does not follow the return of Christ, it's, it's also very difficult to understand many passages in the New Testament that describe the return of the Lord and the judgment on this earth as happening at the same moment. That would be the overwhelming concern of many amillennialists. Look, I, I get how you could get there just reading Revelation, I see how you could get there, but what do you do with all of these other very clear passages that are not apocalyptic literature? What, what do you do with that? So the appeal respectfully would be, I, I think those need to weigh in and help us to understand what's happening here. For example, you might read in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Again, seemingly indicating, most plainly indicating, that at that return, this world comes to an end in judgment, and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Or, for example, Jesus' words in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Or John 5, for example, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good, listen to this, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he 
takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now. Notice this phrase, that so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, a lot of verses but I state them because of these and other verses, it does seem reasonable to me to view this millennium as an age prior to the return of the Lord in which Satan is bound, which will end when Satan's restraints are released and a final judgment takes place, largely influenced by all of those passages. Now, if that's the case, one of my premillennialist brothers would say, wait, wait, wait. This passage describes Satan being bound and cast into a big pit. How can it possibly be that Satan is bound right now? How can that be? And I understand that that is a legitimate observation. That's why I respect those brothers. If that's persuasive to them, I would understand why it is. But let me at least try to answer that objection. How are we to think about this binding? Because surely there is no sense in which Satan is bound categorically during the age of the church. We're warned to watch out for him. He prowls like a roaring lion, and just our own eyes can see that demonic and evil activity take place on earth. I, I think it's very important, again, to remember that Revelation operates with symbolism. I, I think it's our propensity to jump to the physical often, 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 no matter how many times we've discussed this, to jump to the physical that causes us to read this passage as a, a physical reality. Satan is physically put somewhere. But in Revelation, it operates with symbolism. Satan is not a physical dragon who can be bound with a physical chain and a physical key and a physical hole. The point here, I think, symbolically, is that God has restrained him in some way spiritually, that he is clearly and definitively restrained in prison, we could say, in some way. And the passage itself, I think, gives a hint of the nature of this restraint and what he would do if it were not in place. It gives a hint of that. If you look down at your Bibles, you notice that what happens when he's not restrained is that the nations are gathered in an overt war to destroy the church. Do you notice that? So, there's also a question to be posed in the opposite direction. If currently Satan is not restrained, why isn't he doing what the passage says he does when he's not restrained? It doesn't mean there's not opposition right now, or demonic activity resisting the church right now, or pockets of severe suppression and oppression right now, certainly. But we certainly aren't seeing all of the nations gathering together in overt attempts to slaughter the church. We, we've never seen that in history. There's pockets of rebellion, and then there's pockets of flourishing, and they make progress, and then they're struggling in some other way. That seems to be the normal history of the church. So if Satan is right now unrestrained, then why isn't this intention taking place? Well, I would say it's 
it's better, based on the symbolism of Revelation, to say it, it seems he's restrained in some way, though not categorically. That this is not attempting to say or declare he's restrained in every kind of way in this season. I, I think it makes more sense to say, well, no, he's, he's restrained in some sense. And I think the sense would be, what we see elsewhere in Scripture, that he is unable to stop the light of the gospel from spreading over the earth. He is unable to coordinate the nations of the world in such a way that they gather to annihilate the church. And don't we see that in real life history? You have one horrible nation that looks like it could be the end of the world, but then other nations somehow resist that nation, and somehow the church thrives as the nations battle back and forth. That just as one nation is ambitious to dominate the whole world, some other nation says, no, you won't, and pushes back. And somehow in that big struggle, the church escapes and survives through all that season. There's not a sense where all the nations come together and say, we've had it enough, let's kill them all. That, that hasn't happened yet. It will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so I, I think we can look at this and say, look, this does describe a kind of binding, a kind of imprisonment of Satan's ability to destroy. And actually, we see elsewhere in Revelation this same kind of description with different metaphors in describing what happens in the church. You remember the two witnesses who, who represent the church, and somehow they're not harmed until the end. They're, they're allowed to proceed. God protects them. Or you remember the woman who ran away from the dragon, and he tried to destroy her he pours out water out of his mouth of lies, but she's preserved in the wilderness. So throughout Revelation, there's this idea that Satan is thwarted in his ultimate ability. And here the imagery is of a chain in a pit. I, I think that is in keeping as long as we don't assume this is a physical fulfillment in some actual physical place that Satan can't get out of. I think the right way to understand this is not that Satan is non-existent in activity on earth, but that he is unable to stop the light of the gospel. He's unable to coordinate the nations. That, that is in keeping with what we see again elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, John 1.5, where John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or James 4. Has this ever struck you as a surprising verse? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Or Colossians 2, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Couldn't that be rewritten as metaphorically Satan bound by a chain and unable to deceive the nations? Or, for example, we have Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The overwhelming application of that passage is Christ in his coming binds the strong man who is Satan and is able to plunder his captives. G.K. Beale summarizes it this way. The binding and the millennium are best understood as Christ's authority which restrains the devil in some manner during the church age. This would mean that the restraint of Satan is a direct result of Christ's resurrection. The binding, expulsion, and fall from heaven of Satan portrayed in chapters 12 and 20 are seen to be in conjunction with other New Testament passages using similar terminology. Jesus speaks of binding the strong man to plunder his goods, implying that he has come to bind the enemy. Jesus sees Satan 
falling from heaven, even as he gives his, the disciples authority to trample on his powers. Paul states that Christ disarmed the demonic rulers through the cross, and Hebrews 2.14 speaks of Christ rendering the devil powerless. So, if in the death and resurrection of Christ, God has restrained Satan in such a way that he cannot stop the progress of the gospel, that he cannot blind those who are meant to come to faith, that he cannot coordinate the world toward the full destruction of the church, then, then this passage is meant to encourage Christians to rejoice in the same way that those other passages do in God's power over Satan during the church age, in God's promise that the enemy is powerless to stop the progress and stop the forward progress of the gospel and that we can be confident, as Jesus would say, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, you don't have to be an amillennial to believe all of those things because those are present in various other passages of Scripture. I just happen to think that this passage is interpreted that way, lines up perfectly with all of those other passages. Incidentally, this would also be a point where we would, I would part ways with the post-millennial position because as I read the New Testament, it seems to me that though Satan is restrained in such a way that as we see in the book of Acts, no matter what is done by evil, God will cause the gospel to go forward. Though we see that, we don't see, I don't think in the New Testament, an expectation of overwhelming Christianization of society. You see great cause for optimism in the progress of the gospel and great warnings about the suffering of the church because of ongoing evil. As I read the New Testament, that seems to be overwhelmingly present and the testimony. You're going to see the gospel go forward and nobody, even Satan, can't stop it. And yet you're also going to see evil looking to persecute the church. So I would part ways with post-millennials in their optimism about the Christianization of the world even though I would agree with them that there is a way in which Satan will not be able to stop the forward progress of Christ and his church. Now, this, this I think, is meant to encourage. Whatever the final position is that's held about when, it's meant to encourage the church to rejoice in the sovereignty of God over the great enemy so that he cannot come against God's people yet again, as we've seen again and again in Revelation. The enemy can shout, he can scream, he can rage, but he cannot overcome God's purposes in history. But that's not the only reason that John gives us to rejoice. He also tells us to rejoice in the first resurrection. We'll cover these last two sections more briefly. John says he saw thrones. He has a vision of thrones and seated on them those to whom the authority to judge were committed. And he also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, so martyrs and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now here's the, the promise, the declaration about those people. They came to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, because of the thousand years reference, it seems like this is connected to that former thousand years where Satan is bound prior to a final rebellion. That's when they are reigning. So some positions would hold, again, that this is a physical resurrection. However, 
it seems that this is describing something a bit different because it says this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. So this is in some ways distinct from a subsequent resurrection. I think what is a reasonable explanation here is that this is just describing what happens to Christians when they die, martyrs or any faithful Christian. What happens to Christians when we die, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, is that the soul goes immediately to be with the Lord. As Paul would say, to depart and be with Christ is far better. There's no waiting, there's no endless soul sleep, there is an immediate departing to be. So Paul says elsewhere, we will always be with the Lord. Here on earth we're fighting for him, and then upon death we go to be with him. I think if you read this in that way, it makes tons of sense. Christians who on this earth are suffering from evil and apparently are defeated, yet when they die, they are ushered immediately into the presence of Lord with the Lord. They share with him in his reign during this era... So that a Christian need not be afraid, well, what if I die before the end of that time? And John rushes in to encourage you, you, you'll be with Christ. You'll be reigning with Christ. There's, There's no reason to be afraid. The rest of the dead, I think pointing to those who are unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So that would line up with other parts of Scripture which say, in the end there's going to be a bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust. So the souls of saints reign with Christ in heaven, and then in the end, their bodies are resurrected along with unbelievers to go into judgment. And John issues this affirmation, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. And just to be clear, nowhere else in Scripture, nowhere else do we see any references to two bodily resurrections. So in case that crossed your mind, that, we don't see that anywhere else. I think the first resurrection is referring to a spiritual resurrection followed by a physical resurrection later. John says, blessed and holy are those Christians who share in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. In light of the passage, it seems clear. The second death is that endless judgment in the lake of fire that he describes. The second death, he says, has no power over those who are raised with Christ. Instead, they will be priests to minister to God, priests of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what about those Christians who die in the meantime? John's essentially saying the same thing that Paul says to the Thessalonians. No, we will not precede those who fall asleep. We will meet them. They will be with the Lord. You will be with the Lord when you die. So if... While we're seeing the progress of the gospel, you happen to be in one of those spots where evil breaks out upon the church and you are martyred, or if you're just a faithful Christian and you refuse to give in to the lies of that false prophet and beast, you refuse to deny Jesus and you die, you will be with Christ until the end comes. And then you will join those who are living at that time to go into the new heavens and the new earth. This whole passage is packed with encouragement for the church. Rejoice, you are blessed, you will reign with Christ, you will be a priest of God in Christ, meaning you have access into his very presence, you will live in unfiltered glory during the whole of this time. Be encouraged, be strengthened as you even now live in the midst of the battle. Victory, 
Victory for you personally over the schemes and the persecutions of the enemy. Victory for God so that the people of God cannot be stopped and cannot actually finally be destroyed by the works of the enemies of God. Victory, God says. Victory for you and victory for God's people. They will reign with him for a thousand years. We're to rejoice in the first resurrection. We're also, finally, to rejoice in Satan's final judgment. Again, if you read this as I do, as a recapitulation of the battle that was described earlier, but with a particular focus on Satan, the arch enemy, we see many of the same things we saw in chapter 19. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. There's a lot of language here that's borrowed from Ezekiel, except it's been globalized. Gog and Magog, he will gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So I, I, again, I, I don't think we're meant to assume there is a literal geographical location where a little, literal battle of armaments will gather around God's people. Maybe that's what will happen. Maybe it isn't. The point is, this metaphor makes very clear there will be a united global attack on God's people. An overwhelming unprecedented united deception will take place so that it is overtly anti-Christ and anti-Christian. Paul describes it in, in, in Thessalonians as the, the man of lawlessness being revealed. There, there is a sense of overt persecution that is globalized and comes to pass. And Satan finally has his moment where the church seems vulnerable. There they are. They are surrounded. There is no escape. There is no way out. And in that horribly dark moment, we notice yet again that the battle is over before it begins. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. using a, a different image but making the same point, they are <laughs> destroyed. Their apparent strength decimated in a moment. At the height of their apparent glory, they are burned up by heaven. And the devil, verse 10, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. There's actually no verb in the Greek of that sentence. So it's just a way of saying he's thrown there along with them. So Satan and his henchmen are utterly defeated their army is decimated, and they are cast once again into this lake of fire and sulfur, and they will be tormented day and night forever. As we said last week, there, there needs to be a right view of God's holy and furious wrath against his enemy. For the 
churches in Ephesus and Laodicea and Thyatira and Sardis and so forth who, who saw massive temples and massive idolatrous worship and worship of the, of the emperor and so forth, they would have seen anything except for this kind of weakness and vulnerability. So John comes and then tells them, look, look, let, me, let, me tell you, let me tell you what's going to happen to them in the end. They will be utterly destroyed, and they will be cast into eternal punishment for what they did against me and what they did against my people. The Bible is a book of absolutely perfect and furious divine justice. This passage is meant to encourage the church Wherever you might land on the exact timing of the millennium, the passage is very clear in its overarching point. Victory. And even the final attempt, even after all that's been seen in history, Satan still, still, assumes he can gather against God's people, and in that very gathering, they are just positioned to finally be crushed under the heel of the Messiah. Victory. Victory for the church. Victory against the enemy. So, if you are one that worries about the efforts of Satan and demons in this lifetime, this is their end. If you're one that worries about that time in the future and wondering, well, wh- what happens if the nations will gather against, what if they're united? What if there's one global, global group that gathers against the church? Let, let me guarantee there will be. I, I don't know when it will happen, but it will happen. And just as quickly as it gathers, it will be defeated when the Lord returns. And even if you are persecuted and die prior to that point, the testimony throughout Scripture is you will be raised spiritually to be with Christ and you will get to witness this final victory from His presence. You'll have a a front row seat to His sovereign conclusion of the entire story, His sovereign vindication of His saints. And if the Lord returns earlier and you get to watch this from the ground, you'll be caught up in the air to meet those who have gone before, and we will all bear witness to this final victory. And then, having just witnessed this victory, we'll be ushered in to see the glory of the Lord face to face. That's the end of Revelation. That's what we'll be studying in the next couple of weeks. And it's meant to eradicate all fear, all craven fear of the enemy, all worry about the future, all worry about the gathering of the nations. It's meant to obliterate those fears and to cause us to live not just with the inspiration of victory or the the (laughs) indication that perhaps there will be a victory, but the absolute confidence that this victory is assured by the Almighty One. That his enemy will be defeated, his people will be vindicated, and his glory will be revealed for all of history and all mankind. Victory! Victory because of God and because of Christ, and because Christ accomplished the ultimate devastation of the enemy so that he had no power over this earth. 
His power was based in the curse because of sin. And because Christ took that curse on behalf of his people, there is a remnant of humanity that escapes this judgment and they are claimed by Christ, covered by his blood, and escaping they get to witness the judgment of the enemy and all those who followed him. And only because of Christ can we have that front row seat instead of being in the stadium when it is destroyed. So if you are a believer, this passage is a gift to you. Because you are in Christ Jesus, this victory is shared with you. Because you are in Christ Jesus, the victory over Satan is shared with you. It is promised to you. It is given to you, purchased by the blood of Christ and the power of God. There is no need to fear. There is every reason to rejoice. This is our future. Victory in the name of Christ and the power of God. That ought to shape our joy, our hope, our endurance, our faithfulness this week and until the Lord returns. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we say again what we said at the beginning, you are our refuge. You are our salvation. Lord, as we toil through this age where spiritual forces are still at work trying to undermine us, Lord, yet we trust you that you have dominion over them all, that greater are you that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, that you have disarmed the ruler of this world through your death and your resurrection, that God has placed all things under your sovereign authority. So we give you the glory, and we lift our voices, Lord. Banish now, even as we sing, banish, Lord, the various fears and anxieties and worries that often plague our hearts. Banish them, Lord, and help us to sing these truths with faith. In Jesus' name.